Bowdoin Presents podcast addresses current topics being considered in our classrooms, around our campus, and across culture and society. Guests feature subject matter experts, including alumni, faculty, students, and staff, in conversation with me, Lisa Barkby. Noah Finberg is originally from Portland, Maine. He graduated from Bowdoin in 2016, and his honors thesis, Fact versus Faction, Polarizing in the Information Age, was awarded the Philo Sherman Bennett Prize. During his time at Bowdoin, he co-founded the company Consider. It's a search engine that reimagines how people build, store, and update their beliefs so that they're more evidence-based. The company came out of Noah's passion for using data to inform better decision-making. He's currently the head of data at Firm Prospects, a law firm intelligence platform. Welcome to Bowdoin Presents, Noah. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me. I thought we would go back to your Bowdoin days and start with your thesis at Bowdoin. I know things have changed since then. Your thoughts have evolved and uh, a lot has happened in your life. But I thought it could be a good starting point for a conversation around decision-making, facts, evidence-based decisions in our democracy. So I'm going to read you a quote. You might recognize it. It's, again, from your thesis. But for the folks who are listening who haven't had an opportunity to read it yet, it is open source and available on Bowdoin's website. So you write, The information age appears to provide so much potential for people to form political beliefs backed by data and to consistently improve those beliefs through exposure to the perspectives of others. But even a quick look around suggests that this potential is being continuously squandered. Do you remember writing this? Yeah, it's been a little while, but uh, yeah, it rings a bell. Yeah. (laughs) This is a very ambitious task that you set yourself up for. How did you come up with this thesis idea? So yes, it's really ambitious. And I I think back at Bowdoin, I I, I was a lot more idealistic than maybe I am today about the future of technology and and democracy. But the, the thesis idea kind of came out of a little bit of an identity crisis for me. Like I, you know, grew up really politically engaged, felt like, you know, was studying government, felt like, you know, what I believed politically defined a lot of who I was. I, I read this book by Milton Lodge and, and Charles Taper called the, the Rationalizing Voter. Um, and it kind of looks at, you know, how do we process information? What does it mean to have like a political belief? And it got me really questioning you know, why do I believe what I do? Um, where do my beliefs come from? How do I make decision making in, in kind of an environment that's increasingly polarized? And uh, and I started to reflect on that a little bit and realize that, you know, I really couldn't tell you why I believed what I did. You know, I could come up with arguments. I could come up with reasons. I could try to, I could make a compelling case. But at the end of the day, I realized of all the information that we come across in our day-to-day lives, whether that's watching the news or reading a book, we forget almost all of it. And that, that was really kind of existentially concerning to me because I, I, you know, I thought if I can't remember everything I've ever read, if I can't, you know, I, I feel like my mind wasn't really equipped for forming beliefs that are based in evidence. And, and that was kind of the, the background that I went to this work, this thesis, this kind of the context for, for what I was trying to do with the project, which is, okay, can I, can I get a better understanding of how do we process information? How do we form our beliefs? What is a belief even? And can that inform, you know, a better, uh, a more productive political discourse? That's really cool. So, so th- that was one decision to choose this topic for your thesis. 
And that seems to have shaped your Bowdoin life and your postgraduate life so far. How deliberate of a decision was that, you think, at the time? You know, when I think about my life, I think a lot of it seems to happen by these small incremental decisions that we're not always conscious of at the time. And then they build into something that has long-term consequences. How would you describe this part of your postgraduate life and how it's been somewhat shaped by this quest for more fact-based decision-making? It came out of that, that kind of existential kind of questioning of what I believe and, and why. But as I dug into kind of the problem of political polarization, I realized how kind of foundational of a problem it, it is. It, if you think about, you know, how can we really, I would often ask myself, how, how can we really solve any problems if we're not able to kind of have a productive discussion about it, have a evidence-based discourse, find solutions to those problems. And so that that really did start to, it, you know, what started as as maybe just like a an impulsive decision a little bit to explore this area, the more I dug into it, the more I realized, wow, this is something where I think, one, it's increasingly becoming a huge deal in our society. I think it got more and more coverage as, as uh, you know, I started this in 20, really 2014. So the 2016 election hadn't happened yet. It started to really snowball and, and I got increasingly invested in it. So I, I think, you know, it's one of those things that started out not that deliberate, just kind of something I was interested in, something I saw as an area where there, there could be a big, big impact, where it's possible for me to maybe make a big impact. And, and then I took on this really ambitious project, uh, which, which turned into a startup company that I worked on until the end of last summer when we, when we ultimately shut down, closed the business. So yeah, it, it had a really kind of foundational, in my study at Bowdoin, my, my research, uh, my work with Professor Franz in, in the government department had a really kind of foundational impact on the course of my whole life up till now, you know, I spent the majority of my 20s focused on this. If we zoom out a little bit from your personal decision to, to kind of follow this line of inquiry and look at the work you've been doing and how you've been approaching it. And again, I'm going to start off with a question you might recognize. It's from your thesis at Bonin, because it leads us into this conversation a little bit more about how it impacts our democracy, not just your life path, but um, democracy at large. And you ask in your thesis, ultimately, if people want to form better political beliefs, how should they rethink their own consumption of political information in an age of polarization? And I'm curious, what answer did you come up with? How should people think about how they consume information to, to make sure that their beliefs are evidence-based? You know, I, I've had a lot of time to do reflecting on on this question because it's it's what I've spent spent my time kind of trying to build a, a technology to to address. And what might be kind of counterintuitive or surprising is, is I I don't totally agree with the framing of my thesis or my my work anymore. <laughs> I think there are a lot of practical things that that we can do as individuals to form better political beliefs, kind of objectively rooted in substance and evidence. But I actually don't think that that's going to solve our problems or solve the problem of political polarization anymore. And it, I think actually the the solution is much less in building more evidence-based beliefs and much more in being able to empathize with with other people, being able to understand where they come from and 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 f find common ground. Do you think that the way that we 
seem to have been siloed into different sort of news outlet and different places where we find information that create these feedback loops of, of just reflecting our own beliefs back at us. I mean, do you think that's contributing to what you're describing as more of a crisis of, of empathy? Definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, our beliefs are, 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 are really a product of our information environment, what we're exposed to, the people we're around, who we, who we choose to trust. And the kind of way that social media companies operate and, and a lot of journalistic businesses that, that rely on keeping attention, keeping eyeballs glued on, on the screen or on the television is to kind of sensationalize everything, whip up anger and resentment for, for other people. And, and that's profitable for, for these businesses, for these social media companies, but it ultimately starts to drive us farther and farther apart. And I think even like, especially in the last year, when you don't have human to human connection, you have, you're interacting with this digital world and it's designed to keep you engaged and keep you inflamed. We're losing more and more of our understanding that, you know, at the end of the day, most people are really good people. Most people want a better world, a a functioning government. They don't believe that different of things, but they do hate each other. And and I think the our information environments, the silos we're in on, on social media, that, that plays a really a, a significant role. Given all of this that you just told me about how our media consumption shapes the way we view the world and our neighbors and our, you know, the people around us, I'm curious to know what your media consumption is like, what you read and listen to, and how that has changed and evolved since you started studying this at Bowdoin. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a really challenging time to navigate the, the media environment with, with all the options that we have. For my parents' generation, they grew up in an environment where they had a couple TV stations and there was this editorial kind of wall that was put up, the filter through which they saw their content. Now we can find a news article, find a thought leader on Twitter or, or someone on the internet to say what we want to hear, to say what we already think. And so for me, um, some of the practical things I've done that, you know, as a result of the research and just kind of feeling a little deflated by the media, I I don't watch cable news really anymore. News organizations or or media organizations where the business model is optimizing for profit, for attention, for eyeballs, I think fundamentally is going to be less reliable. In terms of what I, I read now and, and listen to often traditional media companies like the New York Times, like NPR with an editorial process that means if they produce something and it, they made a mistake, they're willing to say, you know, retract what they said. I don't want to watch talk news hosts make me feel angry. I would rather read a news article or listen to a, a thoughtful podcast discussion. I think I would encourage everyone to try to try to feel a little bit uncomfortable in, in what they're reading sometimes or not always prioritize what kind of sets their emotional selves aflame. You know, I don't know if the fair way to frame it, but usually if you're feeling really angry and sometimes justifiably, there's a lot of things to be angry about in the world. But oftentimes if you're, if you're really mad and, and, and kind of demonizing someone else, then it's part of the business model. And that's something I would just kind of keep in the back of your mind is, is someone benefiting from making me feel angry like this and, and, is this the appropriate emotion for what's happening? And maybe, maybe it is. I mean, there are a lot of instances where it's right to be angry, but I think it's kind of become the dominant force in, in our po- political discourse. And, and that's 
that's really concerning. I'm going to give you some real quick questions that require quick answers. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Okay. What is the best decision you've ever made? Uh, the best decision I've made was choosing the people that I got to work with. Do you know how you made it? I do not know how I made it. <laughs> What's the worst decision you've ever made? I think not having a business plan going into into starting my company. But I, I honestly, I like, I don't think there are really bad decisions. You have the opportunity to learn from 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 everything you do. So I, I don't feel like I've had a really worse decision. Well, that answers my next question, which is what made it a bad decision, but And then I think you've already answered this, but let's go for it again. How often do you change your mind? Probably not often enough. I, you know, from the, this podcast is, it's, I guess it's clear. I've changed my mind on, on some really big things, like what I spent my twenties doing and, and what I believed, but in the realm of day-to-day political beliefs, I, I probably don't change my mind any more or less than anyone else. Going into the longer answer a little bit, why? You know, you just made this big change in the way that you thought about something so important in your life. I mean, it was a, it was the idea you built your business around. It was a, the idea you built your political activism around. And you took a step back and, and reevaluated what you think drives polarization. Why do you think more people aren't doing that and aren't being more deliberative in their decision-making political and otherwise? And I mean, there's such an abundance of opportunities to get exposures to other ideas and other ways of doing things and approaching things. It seems that we could, but what's stopping us? I think the reason I've had the opportunity to make, to change my mind on some really big things like, like my research is a function of privilege in a lot of ways too. It's that I've had time to reflect and time to really think about some of these issues that a lot of people don't have the ability to do. I mean, most people spend their life making ends meet and and working really hard. And I think I don't I don't think it's realistic sometimes to. I mean, I, yeah, I think it's unfair to to ask people to constantly be reevaluating the big decisions in their lives. I think it, a little bit it's a function of privilege that we get to do that in the Bowdoin community um, in academia generally that that we don't have to worry as much about you know putting food on the table as as the average person in in the united states and in the world if we were granted that privilege if more people had the opportunity to take the time to reflect and consider and and also maybe the courage to say you know what i changed my mind because i think that there isn't a lot of uh, room in our society right now to to do that without seeming inconsistent or perhaps lacking of integrity. So say that we all cut each other a little more slack when it came to that and started valuing changing of minds a little bit more as evolving, as growth. How do you think that would impact and affect our democratic systems and processes if we started embracing this change of mind and a change of mind that was, you know, truly based on new evidence and facts, not a change of mind according to the political winds necessarily? Yeah, that's a really nice distinction. Um, and I would I would kind of add, and you, you got at this with the question is how do we relate to each other and and how do we kind of empathize with with each other's perspectives? It's not even always necessary to change change our minds, but but kind of understanding each other 
um, and respecting each other and trying to, if we were able to do that more effectively, we would see much more productive policy solutions, much less social unrest. Ultimately, I think people would just be happier. They wouldn't be so whipped up and angry all the time, which I think is, is which is exhausting, I think, for, for all of us that, that follow politics where, you know, I'm exhausted and I, I think a lot of people feel that way now. When we talk about these topics that are, they're big and they're heavy and you mentioned exhaustion around political issues and I think a lot of listeners might share that with you. These are challenging times in a lot of different ways. But thinking about democracy and our democratic processes, I want to ask you as a final question, what gives you hope? I think seeing this election last year in 2016 and the and, uh, kind of unprecedented amount of turnout and engagement and, and defense of democracy gave me a lot of hope. There are a lot of people in positions across the country, Republicans and Democrats, who didn't allow the election to be overturned. And that was really meaningful. Um, I'm, and I'm hopeful that we can kind of continue to respect democracy and continue to be more and more engaged as a generation. I think millennials have done a really good job of standing up for their values. And, and I know I have a lot of friends, Bowdoin and beyond, who, who are really inspiring in, in their political engagement. So I think that's something to, to really applaud and, and, and continue to fight for. Thanks so much for joining us at Bowdoin Presents. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Lisa. I, I really appreciate you having me too.